Hey guys, welcome back to the BMS podcast. With us today is Mark Sankey, Rich Fish, and myself, Clayton Ferry. In today's podcast, we will be discussing BMS systems and energy conservation. I think a good starting point to this podcast would be kind of identifying that it seems like it can happen a lot that facilities assume energy costs are the cost of doing business in a way that, you know, like we're building a product, we're making something, but it costs this much. It is what it is. And in reality, with the right building management system, the right technology and the right people, you could really mitigate a lot of those costs by doing some smart control strategies, just identifying and trending data to identify if there's mechanical issues and so on and so forth. So I think that's really what this this episode is going to be geared about is utilizing the building management system for energy conservation on that regard. Yeah. So uh, I just want to interject here. I think BMS, just like any other automation system is a tool. It still needs to be, the tool needs to be used by somebody with the right mindset. And I've been in this business a long time and I'm, I'm really convinced that this is what I was born to do. I love saving energy, reducing costs. My grandfather, when I was a little boy and you know, we didn't have a lot of money. One of his best lines was use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. Well, energy is one of those things that a lot of people, as Clayton said, look at it as a fixed cost. It's not. Turn off the lights. What, what do you do at home? You turn off the lights. You don't leave the doors open. You draw the shades when you're air conditioning and not in a, in a room. So the simple stuff is great. But when you put the power of an automation system in the hands of somebody with a mindset of reducing costs, then you can really, really make some effective uh, advances and changes. Oh, and there are so many BMS systems installed out there that are not being utilized to their full potential to do exactly that. Well, that's a good point, Rich. And in our commissioning podcast, we talk about retro commissioning and recommissioning. And that's the first thing you go to look at is let's look at the control system and see what the set points are. And you look at the schedules and everything's on 24 seven and you look at the set points and there's no dead band between heating and cooling. So the system cycles between heating and cooling continuously. And there's just so many things that it's easier not to get the phone call. So people use the, the most conservative set points they can so that, you know, the folks aren't pestering them. Hey, it's a little warm here. It's a little cool here versus taking, the time to explain our set points are based on the mandate, the requirement to reduce our energy consumption. Even though we are, as a country, blessed with some of the lowest energy prices we've ever had inflation adjusted because of the ability to self-produce energy, ability to produce when, when it's economically viable, clean or renewable energy. So all that's positive. It doesn't mean you should waste it just because it's cheap, though. It's not a never-ending resource. At least not right now. Obviously, it's you know not in our lifetimes, but at some point, fossil fuels are going to be gone. That's right. 
And oh yeah. The, the more conservative we are about the use of energy, the longer that will take. Well, not only that, and obviously a lot of people have their, their own opinions on what I'm about to say, but if anybody has any intent in utilizing uh, renewable energy sources, be it wind, solar, what have you, you it need to be effective. You you really you need to get skinny per se, right? You need to minimize your energy consumption as a facility, or else utilizing those renewable resources is I not want to call it a waste, but you're going to spend it's costly. It's costly, yeah. We you, it 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 is costly, and actually. Few years ago, I wrote a paper for the AEE talking about why conservation always makes always becomes the best investment uh, over investing in renewables, etc. Just because it, it is, it's more economically viable to, as Clayton said, get skinny. Let's cut out the waste before we start to find new ways to buy energy, which we plan to again, waste. Yeah. Yep. And, and that all stems for how do we do that? A uh, uh, properly managed and maintained building management system is, is probably one of the, the best tools as Mark called it to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the, the capability going back to our previous podcast of integrating systems, electrical systems, metering, getting energy data, even getting granular with that down to you know individual pieces of equipment and trending all that information being able to develop a history and starting out even at the highest level comparing you know a building's performance to other buildings in that same classification and how does it rate energy star is one of the ratings that a lot of people utilize to classify, you know, how their building performs compared to other buildings of the same type. But you need all of that information brought into your system, getting the right data, trending it at the, you know, the right time frames, storing it and doing analyze data analytics on it. All of that is facilitated by having it uh, a BMS that's working along those strategies and not just working as Mark said, as a, as a time clock, essentially. So to, to kind of gear this podcast, I, I really, I can break this up into, in my thought, three sections, right? You using a BMS to do smart control strategies, which obviously we'll talk about if it's parallel pumping or um, set point resets and so on and so forth, using it to, like you said, Rich trend data. So, just having that that history of data, you can you can pretty easily, if you know what you're doing, identify mechanical failures or stuck valves, anything like that. And then also using the building management system to reduce energy costs in the form of demand. I don't know if you guys want to touch on any other than those three. I think you're you you've got a lot of in those three sections you've got a lot of content yeah that, that will basically probably fill our podcast i think it will too yeah i agree so let's start let's start with um using the bms to kind of reduce energy costs in the form of demand obviously there's a lot of easy 
things you can do to reduce your your peak demand and thus reduce your energy bill at the end of the month, right? Sure. Correct. Um, it, it, I mean, it, the, when you start, talk about reducing your demand, the, the smart control strategies plays into that as well. But Yeah, you know, you're right. The uh, Getting the right data and, and applying the, the correct strategies once you have that data and taking advantage of, you know, demand control essentially. Mm-hmm. And demand shedding obviously is uh, a whole nother story, but uh, when you can do load shedding, uh, there are significant savings offered from utility companies if you'll do demand-based load shedding. So those are, you know, strategies that are, it's not rocket science to, to do that. So give me an example of demand-based load shedding for the listeners. Uh, it, you know, for instance, a facility may contract with uh, a, a utility provider that went on a, on a high demand day, they, they will automatically get a signal from the utility company that will trigger shutting some of their non-essential equipment off to reduce their demand. And they're provided with some serious financial incentive to do that. It's very, very short periods of time during uh, the year, typically, you know, the hottest days in the summer right. uh, when demand is the highest and, you know, shut non-essential equipment down for short periods of time to reduce that demand and get a significant financial payback from the utility company. And the, the reason that the demand limiting or, or demand response programs are necessary as utility companies are required to bring on their swing load, their peak load equipment, typically that is equipment that is lower lower performing, lower efficiency, and therefore it's often not running. So to fire up another boiler, bring on another turbine that may be less efficient than the primary base load equipment costs more money. At the same time, many areas of the country are distribution constrained, that is the grid connection is not sufficient to provide the level of power that every customer could use. And consequently, the utility companies manage that by putting in financial incentives for local customers to reduce their connected demand. And that reduction of connected demand can occur through a myriad of strategies up to including shutting down equipment. It can also include the starting the initiation of a demand response program, which can utilize local generators running in synchronized parallel operation to the grid to provide a level of some amount of power at the local level, thereby reducing the load on the central generation station and reducing the load on the distribution network. Even getting into control strategies uh, when you're trying to shed demand of just spreading set points automatically opening up set points to allow for a higher cooling set point instead of 72 maybe it goes to 75 and that has an, a ripple effect that goes back down through the system you don't need as cold air the chiller doesn't need to work as hard chiller is obviously one of the pieces of equipment that uses the most amount of energy so there are a lot of different ways that, that that demand reduction can happen. 
and I assume you, you're going to agree with me, but even just reducing starting large pieces of equipment at the same time, right? I mean, obviously, if you were to start, I don't know, if you want to talk about chillers, multiple chillers at the same time, or uh, I don't know, there's just a compressors, a myriad of different equipment. And if you increase your demand for, I don't know how long it generally is for the utility, but if that demand's high for 15 minutes, out of the whole month, that's what the ratchet clause, right? You're going to pay right. for that for the whole month. So, oh, just you doing pay for that for the whole year. The whole year. There's a ratchet clause. You okay. pay for it for the whole year. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. implementing these smart control strategies just by starting equipment at different times can obviously save you a lot of money, and it takes nearly no effort if you if you can identify the problem and just schedule them appropriately. Well, it was interesting. Years ago, we did a big project campus setting on a uh, with a facility that was very close in proximity to a nuclear power plant. So one of the things that w- we had a somewhat ulterior motive because we wanted to run some testing, but we indicated that to the management team, it would probably be beneficial if there was a nuclear event, a leak, for instance, to be able to close the outsider dampers, one virtual button on the workstation that basically will close every outside air damper and run all the air handling units on recirculated air for some amount of time until it it returns to normal. So we picked a test day in August to run, now this is a big facility, to test the demand the the emergency response to a nuclear situation so it's about 95 degrees outside and high relative humidity and we push the you know trip the nuclear emergency button all the outside air dampers in the facility went closed and within less than 20 minutes we had shed three and a half megawatts of load oh (laughs) my gosh that that really made the case for uh you know, absolutely definitively made the case for demand control ventilation strategy throughout the facility. Yeah. But, it, you know, first we wanted to say, okay, you, you can certainly close all the outside air dampers, but there was a lot of poo-poo. I'm not sure that DCV will really be effective here. Well, that really uh, hammered down the issue pretty quick when it saw their connected load, their actual load dropped by three and a half megawatts. Yeah, a lot of people think of demand-controlled ventilation as increasing ventilation need when in reality the, the, the idea behind it is to decrease that instead of running at some fixed minimum outdoor air position that was you know, based on uh, you know, original calculations of the ASHRAE minimum you know, CFM per square foot per person. Uh, I might, might be saying it wrong, Mark, but when you go uh, to demand control ventilation and there's not a high population, you can reduce that amount of outdoor air instead of running at that, you know, that kind of set minimum. Oh, that's exactly right. Yeah. When we did, we did the project up at the new London nuclear sub base on the sub school project. So eight of the buildings that we worked in were barracks. So those buildings would basically run at, their fixed minimum 24 seven. And when we put in the 
CO detector, CO sensors, and airflow stations in the units. Basically, so there's two components to demand control ventilation calculation. One is the CFM per square foot, and then the other is the CFM per person. So you have a base number that says the minimum ventilation is this many CFM per square foot, and then based on the building occupancy, the, that changes. And then same with the CFM per person based on the activity level. So it turns out that about 75% of the day, the daylight period, the sailors were not in the facility. And consequently, we could go to a much lower ventilation rate. And uh, even the same thing at night, you can go to that prescribed minimum flow rate versus a fixed minimum flow rate, which helps the reduce the, the cooling demand and the heating demand. I just pulled it up looking at the ashray.org and CFM per person, it depends on the facility, but I see fluctuations between 10 and 5 CFM per person. CFM per square feet, 0.06, 0.12. So obviously, if you don't have an occupant load in that facility, you can greatly reduce the CFM require the outdoor air CFM requirements for that space, which thus will reduce energy uh, quite a bit. And it's interesting because you don't necessarily need a BMS to do that, but it's certainly the easiest way to do it. And going forward, once you do it, the BMS is the mechanism to track the performance of the system, making sure in the parlance of the ESCOs that the savings are sticking, that they're yeah. continuing to occur and nobody's manually overriding or or fails or a damper actuator fails so that the the savings deteriorate over time. You, that's really something that, especially in an ESCO situation, you want to avoid. And I know you said you don't necessarily need a BMS, but like our last episode, we discussed it. It obviously <laughs> makes it a lot easier or that information may already be available that's not automatically triggering that BMS. You know, putting in occupancy sensors, uh, CO2 monitors, scheduling there's a lot you can do with the bms to help with that smart control strategy of dcv well and go back to the go back to the example i cited earlier where we had the nuclear test button it would be very difficult on a campus that size to initiate demand controlled ventilation without a bms and if you did it would be virtually impossible or it would be a enormously manpower intensive endeavor to make sure that everything was continuing to work as programmed without the BMS and the data that it collects. Yep. So let's talk a little bit more about some other smart control strategies. Obviously, we kind of rolled our conversation from, from demand shedding and demand limiting to smart control strategies with DCV. But depending on the facility, there's obviously a lot, a lot of now seemingly simple things you can do that people may not think about right? Yeah, absolutely. There, there are a lot of very simple uh, applications to just very typical equipment, nothing special, that is just taking a different approach in the sequence of how you operate that piece of equipment. It doesn't even typically require any complicated strategies. They're fairly simple strategies. Chiller plant optimization. I mean, variable primary flow systems are becoming much more prevalent in chiller plant design, and that allows for 
greater optimization capabilities with the chiller plants, doing reset of your chilled water set point based on the actual demand of the devices that are using chilled water, you know, valve positioning. If your chilled water system supplying air handling units or chilled beams or any kind of piece of equipment using chilled water, if you're monitoring the position that the valve is calling for to satisfy whatever its requirements are, and all of your valves are, you know, in a lower position, meaning basically closer to closed than, than to full open, then you can allow your chilled water set point to creep up, reduce the amount of energy you're spending to cool that water right. until you start to see, you know, a piece of equipment getting near its maximum demand, meaning, you know, maybe the valve is reached, uh, there's a valve out there somewhere that's reached 90% position, then you start trimming back the set point to be able to keep that satisfied and continually optimize that chill water set point based on actual demand. Yeah. And then, you know, if we're talking about chilled water, hydronic systems, you know, the, the most obvious one to me too is parallel pumping. Seems like every facility has a lead and a lag pump and that's how a lot of places still run them. And it's, you can reduce the energy requirement for pumping pretty dramatically. Yeah. Just by saying, let's run these in unison and it really doesn't affect the lifespan of the pump. And I think a lot of people think that that does. And they think, well, how can I save energy by running two pumps as opposed to one? But if you go back to the fan and pump laws, obviously, I think running two pumps at half speed compared to one pump at full speed, you're using a quarter of the energy, which is impressive. And, and you're you're not really putting ex- excessive wear and tear on the pumps because that running at half speed puts far less wear on yeah. impellers and yep. and motors at that speed versus running it at full speed. So it, uh, a very simple and very cost-effective short payback strategy. Yeah. I don't know why more facilities don't do that. When when you point that out to people, it's like, wow, we can actually save that much energy by, by doing that. And the the whole thing with the, you know, the the fan and pump laws with the, the, the way the efficiency on the curve, it's been there forever. Yeah. Why it takes people so long to understand that advantage of doing that sometimes baffles me. Well, it was interesting. Anecdotally, we did a project a few years ago, a couple thousand ton central chill water plant for a large manufacturing firm. And we did the whole design. So, you know, lay out the piping, spec the chillers, everything. And basically ended up selecting a couple of McQuay mag bearing chillers and all of the pumps were either dual or triple pumps in parallel and we started it up everything's good and the facility costs the operating costs just plummeted because previously they had uh, cooled the entire facility with dx rooftop units we changed the central air handlers and again a big central chill water plant and the Utility costs plummeted, so the funding team that basically paid for all this 
came to the facility. It's a critical operation, meaning the chilled water plant provides cooling not only for the HVAC equipment, but also for the manufacturing equipment. And they, we basically took over part of the warehouse to create the mechanical room. They got to the mechanical room and the uh, vice president of operations almost his eyes bulged almost out of his head. He said, why isn't this running? And I said, it is running. He said, why is it so quiet? Because that's how it runs. So now, he, I mean, he's an old school mechanical guy like me. He's over putting his hands on the pumps. These pumps aren't running. I said, yes, they are. And look down at the impeller shaft. So they're all about 26 hertz. And they run so cool, it feels like they're not running. Now, if you go to a typical pump that's running at 100%, that pump will be 125, 130 degrees, the motor. So just by virtue of the amount of heat loss that goes away, I mean, that's where your efficiency number really gets proven out is by how, you know, they're, the pumps are just basically idling down the road. The, the mag-bearing chillers are extremely efficient. Yep, and I mean that's that's a case in point. And the BMS monitors all that, so they know in a heartbeat. Hey, we have a pump going south, or we have a chiller that's, you know, we had a chiller that was starting to uh, not perform very well, and it turns out, you know, we were starting to see a very high delta T on the condenser side, and they pulled the the strainers apart, and somebody that had been cleaning the cooling tower left a rubber glove in there and got sucked into the strainer. So we had reduced condenser water flow, but all that was identified through the BMS. And that example you were talking about, Mark, with those pumps running and, and them being so cool, it, just the laws of entropy, heat creates entropy. Right. So those, those pumps are going to last way longer running at that lower speed than they would running closer to full speed. So you get much more life out of the equipment as well. And I know we didn't, we're talking about hydronics systems and I know we can branch out of this a little bit, but even to that point, and I'm, I think you're assuming this, but to make it clear, you know, by monitoring the demand on that, that loop that that pump, those pumps are, are feeding, you can turn those down. I know we talked about, you know, parallel pumping reduces the speed requirement by half at full load, but at part load, you know, like Mark mentioned, that's what allows us to really bring that down to the, the minimum speed you can almost physically do on some of these pumps, because if the demand's not there, we don't need to, to pump those BTUs there. So that's where, that's where you can really turn down that, that speed requirement. If it has a VFD, which it will, if you're parallel pumping to, to further reduce energy costs and to further you know, reduce heat and make that pump and those, that equipment last longer. And you get into uh, continuing to talk about hydronic systems and, and kind of particularly at this point, you know, chilled water systems, chillers, particularly centrifugal chillers, the same kind of law applies pretty much to running two chillers at a lower load than running one chiller at a full load. Right. Yep. With your typical centrifugal chillers. When you get into the mag bearing chillers, that changes a bit. But being smart about how you're running your chillers and not running one chiller, you know, flat out 
when you could be way down on the you know the on the curve and getting a better cost per kW per ton running two chillers at part load. So there's a, a, a lot of strategies that are simply implemented through sequences in the controls done by the BMS, even going on to the, the hot water side, that whole optimization based on, you know, why make 180 degree water unless you're, you know, needing it for like radiant heat or something that requires right. that that temperature to to function correctly but why make that hot a water if all of your valves that are using the hot water are all closing down yep you know, let that water drift up don't do it based on outside air reset uh, again unless you're you know working with the skin of a building where it, you're using heat around the skin of the building as a barrier but on reheat I never advocate for using outside air reset on reheat. Do it based off of actual demand. It's just so much more efficient. Agreed. I mean, resetting hot water supply temperature from outside air is the perf is, is the primary example that I use as an open loop control system when I do control system training. What's the difference between open loop and closed loop? Well, in closed loop, you had feedback. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, we will never change the temperature of the outside air based on resetting the hot water temperature. Right. And then I'll give it a, a quick brief explanation. And if you want to add to this, just for our listeners, basically, if they don't know what a reset schedule is, is you would be adjusting probably it's a linear reset you would generally do between whatever, 180 and 110, 120 degrees. And that, that, temperature reset is dependent on the the demand of the system right so you you have your yeah so the, basically there's an assumption that as the outside air temperature goes down the skin loss through the building as delta t from inside to outside goes up the heat loss out of the through the wall is a linear proportion which back in the day of pneumatic controls or simple controls that was a reasonable assumption now we have the opportunity to write much more uh, meaningful control strategies, as Rich said, based on the actual demand inside the space for heating or cooling and be able to not overproduce primary energy or secondary energy like hot water or chilled water like we would typically have, which we always produced for worst case, right? We yep. produced 180 degree water when it's uh, zero degrees outside and maybe we didn't need it. Mm -hmm. And I, there's actually, uh, uh, in the very early days of performance contracting, when I was working for Johnson Controls, we surveyed, and this was before the advent of data loggers, this was before you could go and put a lot of things out. So most of the information that we gathered for what would be termed the baseline came from boots on the ground, eyes on the site. And I was uh, leading a team that was surveying a school in upstate New York. Obviously, it gets very cold. It was early January. And we were preparing for a board presentation the following week. So I stayed in the town and wanted to look at the conditions of the building during the unoccupied period over the weekend and drove up to the school. And it was probably 10 degrees outside and 80% of the windows were wide open. And the cleaning staff was there. I, I got in the building 
and every room was on full heat, everyone, and went through the rooms and the pneumatic control system, got to the mechanical room, and there was no compressed air. And every control valve in the Northeast is a normally open control valve to prevent freeze up. So I went to the compressor and the disconnect was pulled. And I thought, well, the worst thing that happens is we'll, we'll use a little bit more energy. There may be a reason this disconnect is pulled. Maybe the compressor's out of commission. Didn't know, so I didn't you know, put the disconnect back in the on position. And uh, went to Monday morning, came back, and the um, went back to the school. Air compressor's running. Teachers come in. It's very warm in the school, and by mid-morning, they were starting to close the windows. And actually, the, um, probably two-thirds of them closed. So I went to the board meeting on, uh, I think it was Thursday night, and showed pictures and, you know, made our presentation and said, well, you know, the school overheats every weekend. I mean, the, the windows of the school are open every weekend during the cleaning period. And a board member almost climbed out of his seat and he said, of course, the, the windows are open. It would be too hot to work in there if they, if the windows were closed. And I, I worked diligently to, you know, bite my tongue and explain that turning the air compressor off while well-meaning is ineffective in terms of reducing energy consumption because sure, we saved the uh, horse and a half air compressor energy, but in the meantime, we've overheated the entire building with our oil-fired boilers. Yeah, that's crazy. That is, I've heard that story before from you and it's, it's crazy to think that, but that's what happens in facilities a lot you know, maybe not to that full magnitude, but you think you're, you're doing the right thing by shutting something down or, or what have you and the downstream effects are, could be, you know, amplified so much more and having a smart building management system that can trend these, these, these data points, you can identify how much, where your energy consumption is, you know, what time your energy consumption is and so on and so forth. It, it can help prevent the need for somebody like you you know, that knows these facilities and knows a lot about building management to identify that, oh, there's a problem, you know. You would see, you look at your trends every, what have you. I mean, you'd, you'd see temperatures go up on the weekends and you can see your energy consumption goes up and you'd be like, huh, I'll be damned. Something's going on. Right. Nobody's there. So that's how, yeah, building management systems play a huge role in this. And then I know we talked a lot about smart control strategies with hydronic systems, if it's chilled water or hot water. Anything else we want to talk about control strategy wise? I mean, obviously you can do static pressure control for turning down your handlers with VFDs. That's another one that you don't necessarily need a smart building management system to do, but. No, but it is, it is interesting to watch what I've seen as the evolution of mechanical, primary mechanical systems going forward as BMS ha has evolved into allowing more and more sophisticated control algorithms. We're working with a manufacturer that's got, you know, a hot gas reheat embedded in their uh, air handling systems to provide dehumidification 
you know, everything works on a coordinated basis with the drives, the uh, hot gas reheat, the variable speed compressor, really, really some highly efficient equipment that years ago would have been very difficult to control effectively if the technology were even available. And it's, it's really gratifying to see the, um, the advancements in mechanical systems. I mean, who would have thought that we would have magnetically levitated chiller shafts that allow the compressor wheel to be reduced in size by 50% or more and the RPMs go up accordingly to maintain the, the compressor wheel tip speed. I mean, just amazing stuff that is so, so really cool to see. Yeah, and on the air side, part of the equation for smart control strategies, there's a number of different things that can significantly impact energy consumption. You know, why run your air handling unit to maintain a fixed downstream static pressure in the duct if uh, all of your VAV boxes are closed down, allow that pressure to reset down and back off your fans instead of running the fans at a you know, a speed to produce an amount of pressure in the ductwork that's not necessary based on current load. Yep, I agree. And and <laughs> just coming to mind, obviously, for the listeners, I know we're talking a lot about what you can do for energy savings, but this all ties into the building management system because like you said, Rich, I mean, your BMS can see that static pressure downstream to then tell the VAVs to, you know, the, the fan speed to back up and allow your VAVs to open up a little bit more. Or all these, you know, the, your hydronic loop differential pressures, same thing. The the BMS really is the the workhorse in this because it it takes that information and allows us to utilize it to do these smart control strategies to then save energy. So that's that's really why this this episode is in our BMS podcast is because the the building management system is the workhorse as part of this. this. This is what allows all these smart control strategies to occur. So just wanted to jump in and for our listeners, make that clear why we're talking about a lot of energy savings in our BMS podcast. Right. And we talked earlier about demand control ventilation, what a significant impact that can have. Optimal start, particularly with the intelligence that's in uh, the typical BMS system now, where that optimal start is a learning adaptive algorithm or sequence that learns based on indoor temperature versus outdoor temperature versus the cooling or heating capabilities of the piece of equipment when it needs to start in order to have the space at an optimal temperature when the occupants arrive, not starting too soon or not starting too late, not shutting off at a uh, scheduled time when it could actually shut off earlier. So the, a lot of stuff that used to be, I don't I don't want to call it voodoo, but it's certainly something that's available in pretty much any BMS system now is this learning adaptive optimal start. The demand shedding that we talked about earlier, basically as you're bringing equipment on when the building is, you know, coming towards its occupied state, you know, staging equipment starting at, uh, uh, you know, at different times, as we said, to avoid hitting that peak demand. We covered, you know, talking about set point resets, getting into the, you know, how 
lighting can play into saving energy, integrating lighting control with your BMS. The BMS is already in the space, already doing a lot of things sensing-wise in the space, uh, integrating the lighting control with the BMS so you can coordinate schedules, coordinate occupancy, take advantage of daylight harvesting. All of those strategies are simple strategies. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So let's move on then to, we, we started out with, you know, demand shedding and demand control. And we talked about smart control strategies with the BMS. And I think the last, the last point we want to discuss in this episode is just how the trending and the availability of data can help identify certain mechanical issues. And maybe that will result in energy savings, or maybe that will just, just prevent issues from occurring. But the, the building management system is just a, an amazing tool to have to identify if there's a stuck valve. I mean, so much. So my, my cautionary statement on that is, Clayton, you're absolutely right. But my uh, advice to specifiers and engineers is the best BMS system in the world will only do what it's told to do. So it's incumbent that the engineer, the specifying engineer or the company installing the BMS trend everything. You trend everything at a granular enough level that you can gather data to perform analytics on a proactive basis, that is develop more strategies, and also be able to do forensic analysis in the event of a failure so that you can determine what happened first. And when I say what happened first, let's see. Did the outside air damper stick and then the coil froze or the coil froze and the freeze that didn't trip or the building started to overheat because the chilled water system shut down first or the chiller went off on a high head because all the valves closed. It's important that all of the, the data be gathered all the time. It, and it, interestingly, I had a call from my alma mater a year or so ago from the facilities director and she was having some difficulty understanding why the, the, there were two buildings on the central campus chill water plant that were using excess heating energy in the winter. And they had demand controlled ventilation in, they had, you know, all, all this stuff. And she said, I cannot figure it out. So I knew they had undertaken some modifications to the chilled water plant over the course of the summer, added two new buildings, uh, built two new buildings that were near the end of the chill water loop. And I said, so you added those two buildings on, are they on their own secondary loop or did you tag them off another secondary loop? Oh, we, we just extended the secondary loop. I said, I understand. So then did you have sufficient differential pressure or did you have to increase the differential pressure to maintain flow out to the end of the loop? Oh, no, we had to raise the pressure quite a bit. I said, in the two buildings and maybe the third building that you're having overheating problems with are at the beginning of that line, right? Yep. I said, so here's what's happening. You've raised the differential pressure to the point where the close-off pressure on the valves can't close against the DP at the uh, buildings closest to the pumps and you're having to use your heating energy to overcome that as well as the ventilation load. And there was silence on the other end. I said, get the data and call me back. 
she called me back and said, you're right. I didn't even think about that. But when we look at the Delta T coming from those three buildings on the chill water side, we have a 10 degree Delta T in the middle of the winter. So they were heating and cooling at the same time. That is the kind of granular data you need to be able to get to actively or, or accurately and correctly troubleshoot system problems. Absolutely. And, and the start of your discussion there, Mark, was the point that I was going to talk about too. Specifying engineers, you know, have to call for that data to be trended. In the past, I've seen specifications say, you know, the, the, the system shall be capable of trending. And the BMS vendor puts the system in and they don't set up any trends. And, you know, a year down the line, something happens and uh, building facilities, people want to look at what was trended and nothing was trended. They ask the question, well, you didn't specify what you wanted trended. You just said it had to be capable of trending. Uh, you are exactly right, Rich. Nowadays, the capabilities of BMS systems, both with memory storage, speed of communication networks, there's no reason none whatsoever, not to trend every physical I.O. point, every calculated set point, every fixed set point. All of that data should be trended continuously, you know, at the correct interval of time, obviously. And certainly the limits on how fast and how much you can trend are uh, the sky kind of is the limit now when you go to IP-based systems versus the lower level field networks that had some limitation of speed that affected how much they could trend. Controllers now have memory built into them that allows the controllers to do a significant amount of trending locally and then push that data up to storage on a hard drive or cloud drive or whatever on a server at periodic basis. All of that information allows you to do exactly what you were talking about, do those fault detection and the diagnostics, you know, apply data analytics to basically automatically find those things that they had to call you to suss out. Um, you know, so often when you run a fault detection diagnostic algorithm, one of the first things you find with a lot of equipment is simultaneous heating and cooling. Right. which is just, it, it's insane how much of that goes on and how much energy that wastes. You know, steam traps, holy cow, the amount of energy that gets wasted when steam traps are not maintained and stuck. There's so many things that just make so much sense that it's mind-boggling that it's not, you know, more of it is not done. There is a trend developing nowadays where controllers are being manufactured by, you know, the various companies from some of the smaller outfits up to the big, you know, Fortune 500 companies to build the fault detection and diagnostics right into their controllers themselves so that that's automatically happening from the get-go instead of, you know, it having to be done by a third-party system there's still the big data analytics and the, the real deep processing of that data is at this point still best served by 
you know, kind of cloud-based where there's some serious computing power and the ability to store a lot of different uh, analytic algorithms. But it's migrating out to the edge. And I, I think as we see the systems develop further, more and more of that is going to migrate out to the edge where this kind of stuff should be happening automatically as an out-of-the-box application. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. I agree. Although I, I have to say, I would be much happier to see manufacturers embedding uh, self-tuning tools before they worry about fault detection. Yeah, that's I, I see a lot of poorly tuned control loops out there. The self-tuning PID, it's been kind of the holy grail in, in uh, desire of, of control for a long time. It's not rocket science. Uh, I'm really no. baffled sometimes as to why it's not universally implemented. With the with with some of the stuff today, even getting outside of PID, you know, fuzzy logic has been around for quite some time. You know, going at a a qualitative type control versus quantitative type control. I'm surprised there's not more of that kind of control being applied to control loops. Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I have my own hobbies and things like that. I, I bought probably a year and a half ago a $57 PID, single loop PID controller that has self-tuning in it that controls the relative humidity in my humidor and has self-tuning and works like a champ. 54 bucks, little display, you set it up and it maintains the relative humidity in the humidor plus or minus a tenth of a percent, which probably the sensor isn't that accurate, but the, the loop is. Well, I, I know that in the industrial world, uh, you know, it, it's almost universally applied. Right. And that's what this is, is a little baby quarter din industrial controller you you set the startup parameters and then give it 45 seconds and it does its own self-tuning and it's ready to rock and roll. To Rich and Mark, bo- both of those are, are very good points. Rich, you know, just regarding the, the IT and the, the analytic capabilities of the modern BMS system is, is really impressive. And I think that'll lead us into actually our next episode really well, which is IT challenges with large-scale integration. So we'll be able to discuss more on that regard. But for the listeners, I know we covered a lot and we we really bounced around a little bit, but some of the big takeaways of today's episode are how the BMS system can be utilized to its fullest extent to save energy if that's by reducing demand or by implementing smart control strategies or by identifying mechanical issues that are wasting energy. So I hope you guys took something away from this episode and stay tuned for our next episode. As I said, we'll be discussing IT challenges with large scale integration. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great day.